Get up, get out of that grave. What an incredible song. I thank God that I'm free. I don't know about you, but I'm thanking God that I'm free. I hope that all of you are doing the same thing. You know, the Bible tells us that he whom the Son sets free is free. What? Indeed. You know, we don't use that word very often, but we do use a word like that when it comes to Easter. You know, we often say, he is risen, and then you would say, he is risen indeed. And so I just thank God that we're able to celebrate Easter together at this time, in this way, in this season. I want to welcome all of you. Some of you are joining us online, maybe for the first time. So thank you for being with us. My name is Pastor Derek Fry. I'm the pastor of Connect Church. We are a multi-site church. We are many locations and we are yet one church. And so today we are online in, on Facebook. I want to welcome you guys. I want to welcome you on all our online platform. I want to welcome those of you that may be having a watch party somewhere. Congratulations for doing that. I want to give a special shout out to all of our locations. We have six locations that are meeting today, seven services for Easter. We're in Ashland, Framingham, Natick, Marlboro, Milford, and now Shrewsbury. So shout out to all you guys. Come on, let's just give God a big praise for all of the locations and all the people that are watching at Easter today. Listen, I hope that if you're watching online, you could find a location near you. And so if you just go to our website, you can see how to connect, how to register, how to get involved. Find a location near you. I also want to encourage you to find a group. It's so, impor it's so important that you have community, that you are fellowshipping with other like-minded believers. We all need encouragement in a discouraging world. I don't know about you, but that is true for me. And so I, I group. I, I, I can't do it without group. Now, some of you might already be in a group. Some of you maybe like to join a group. And so we have physical groups that you can just go to our website and you can get involved that way. Um, some of you may want to do a group online. So we have groups that are online. In fact, we just started uh, some new groups. We call them SSU groups. Uh, Sunday Service Unpacked. And so if you like some of the things that we're talking about on the weekends in our services online or in person, and you want to just kind of go a little bit deeper and not just kind of skirt past it and move on, uh, we have these SSU groups that are meeting online, and you can sign up today. There's a link right now that you can check that out so that you can get involved. I want to encourage you, do not, under any circumstances, do life alone. Listen, I want to get into the continuation of what has been a really powerful series. I want to thank some of you for the feedback that you've given me. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we talked about the rich young ruler. Uh, last week, we talked about the Pharisee and the prostitute. And uh, that's one of my favorite messages in terms of how it impacted my life. I gave a little bit of my story and Stacy's story in there as well. So if you didn't listen to it, go to our YouTube channel, check that out, and uh, it'll bless you in a big way. But today, we're continuing our series, Encounters uh, with Jesus. Now, this particular day, Easter, brings back memories of when I was a kid. Now, this will be a little bit, you know, surprise to some of you as you're looking at me, but I remember having some harsh, close encounters with my father when I was growing up in regards to getting ready for church on Easter. And the harsh encounters were with a hairbrush and a hair blower. I know, look at me. Can you believe it? Like, yeah, I actually used to have hair, and it was very curly, believe it or not. Some of you that have been around a long time, I know you're smiling because you remember, you know, I knew him when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. And, um, 
And so you remember that, but some of you have never seen that. And so my dad, what he would do is he'd try to get every crazy curl out of my head with this hair blower and this brush, and he would straighten my hair, and he was trying to get me to just, just have my hair look perfect. And, and it was stressful, and it was stressful. And, 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 and the goal was to have this image of perfection, right? And, um, and so he'd work hard at it, and, you know, hey, it worked out, you know? I look pretty good. We'd go off to church, and we'd have, you know, our, 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 we were dressed to the nine, and we'd have our suits on, and I remember, like, they would curl the hair, like, up and under around your ears, crazy. I, I couldn't, because of my concern for my image, I couldn't bring a picture to show you. It was too embarrassing. But I think some of you, like me, uh, were subjected to, probably even today, some considerable Easter stress trying to get that Hallmark family image, you know, ready today. Maybe for some photos or maybe for an event that you're having or maybe you're doing an Easter egg hunt outside or something like that. How many of you have ever had, by a show of hands, come on, in all the city groups and online, how many of you had to do a little image management at some point in your life? You know, you're just a little bit concerned about that. You know, in my life, this was an issue. And that's why this message is kind of uh, personal and, 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 and it hits home with me and reminds me of many things in my past. In my preteen years, I was really preoccupied with image. You know, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted people to accept me. I wanted people to like what I do, like what I say. And so in school, literally, like right into middle school, I was the class clown. I used to get in trouble for talking. You know, I can remember one, one time in school, I had 21 points taken off my final grade because I talked so much in class because I just could not resist the laughs and the affirmation that would I get from the rest of the class, even at the expense of my, my, my final grade. You know, as I got older into my teens, you know, I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be boss. You know, I wanted to have the, the clothes and, 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 the, and the jeans, whatever. We had all kinds, of, you know, the 501s, you know, the straight cut Levi's. You know, I want to have the Nike Cortez. I'm bringing you guys back. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Those are even back now. That's crazy. I got to get me a pair of those, by the way. I don't have those. My wife's freaking out right now. You know, you got to have the polo, you know, cologne. Like, it was all about that, right? It was all about kind of that image. And, and then I got into college, and shoot, I couldn't afford any of that stuff. You know, it was kind of like my parents were putting all the money into school. And so now, if I was going to have anything like that, you know, I'd have to get a credit card because that was cheap money. <laughs> but I didn't know what that meant, you know, that there was going to be a consequence for that. And so later I learned, you know, if you want to have an image, you have to have, you know, rich kids with nice clothes for friends. But anyway, when I got into ministry, it still, it still was there, this, this desire for image. And I wanted the strokes of the people and the affirmations and of the people. And, and it was tempting, but it, but it left me empty in the end. In fact, some of the people that I would live for don't even live with me or, 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 or in relationship with me anymore. And so once I fully surrendered my life to Jesus, it was before that, it was like I was in a, a living room with the lights off. But after I fully surrendered my life to Jesus, it was like the lights came on. You know, the, you, know you can never understand um, darkness from a position of darkness, um, you eventually learn that darkness can't be understood from a position of darkness. It can only be understood from a position of light. You've got to turn the lights on to see what's actually happening in the living room, as it were. But you and I live in a world that's very different than that. We live in a world 
where they want you to experience it for yourself, experience the darkness uh, to understand it. They don't say it like that, but it's said like, sow your wild oats, or try it, you'll like it, or play now and you can pay later. Um, you know, and, and when I encountered Jesus, all of that changed. It's like, bam, it flipped it on its back. I could see it for what it was. I see things that I didn't see before. And you can too, if you can encounter Jesus. And so this series is about those kind of encounters where the lights come on for you, where you get the reality, a vertical reality to the horizontal uh, environments that we're in right now. This light, Jesus, is extraordinary if embraced. In fact, Matthew 4.16 says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Even people in darkness can't deny the light of Jesus. They might not accept it, and that's where the struggle and the pain comes in in our message today. But some of you, uh, no, actually all of you someday are going to have to determine how you want to live. How do you want to live your life? Will you live like I did as a teen, even into ministry, early ministry years, with an image-driven life? Or will I or will you live your life for an eternity-driven life? And I'm going to unpack though, that, those, contrasting kind of, uh, those contrasting concepts. And my conviction is this, and I think you uh, would agree if you were kind of like just stopped and hit pause and had a time out. But I think we're all innately spiritual beings seeking meaning in life. Now, we might not see it that way, but we're certainly seeking the spiritual. We're certainly seeking something more. There has to be more. In fact, one of our core values at, at Connect is eternity. There's more to this life than this life. And so the big idea that I want to kind of uh, unravel today is this. Write this down if you're taking notes. And as I always say, if you're not taking notes, go ahead and write this down. But I believe we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Now, that human experience is what Rick Warren calls a temporary assignment. We, it, we are having a temporary human experience, but we are actually spiritual beings where, where we will live somewhere forever, and we have this life to choose that, this life to make a difference, this life to find meaning, this life to make a choice. And so some of us lose light of that reality, living in this reality, and we choose the wide lane, as it were, of the highway, not the narrow road. And the wide lane leads to an image-driven life, an image-driven life. And there are throngs and throngs of people around the world today, in and out of Christianity, who choose this path instead of the path God has for them, which is rarely obvious. And so we need to look a little deeper to find it. So today's conversation is between a, a Roman political figure, and his name was Pilate. And as a result of this encounter that Jesus had with Pilate, uh, he died. Uh, well, first of all, he was crucified horribly. He died, and then he rose again on the third day. We believe that with all our heart. That's what we celebrate today. We believe that the resurrection validates and verifies our faith in, in and through him. But who was Pilate? Who was this, uh, as my friend would say, who was this joker? Pilate was um, a really interesting dude. He was a governor, uh, some, sometimes referred to as a prefect. Um, he was a governor of a portion of Israel. Samaria and Judea made up about three quarters of Israel, and the other quarter was governed by Herod, who was a really interesting dude all by himself. We could do a whole message on that in Jesus and Herod maybe another time. But um, 
Pilate was uh, under the leadership of Tiberius Augustus, uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor. He was the king over everyone. And he, he was given this jurisdiction, Pilate was given this jurisdiction of this portion of Israel. And in this portion of Israel, his word was law. His word was law. And so his sole job was basically to collect taxes keep the peace. If he did a good job, it would be very lucrative. It would be very influential. But uh, Pilate and another group of people would have a lot of friction, and that was the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the, the, the Sanhedrin. And the Jewish people hated Pilate, and he hated them. In fact, he would provoke them often. Multiple times it's been recorded he would steal funds that were allocated to the building of the temple. He would steal funds that were allocated to the establishment of an aqueduct. He would go and he would he would take like um, <coughs> excuse me. He would take uh, what do you call it like um, false gods and, and just different kind of images and pagan symbols, and he would parade them around Jewish quarters just to just to kind of stir them up. But it, it backfired on him one day, and we see that happened in the Gospel of John chapter 18. So I'm going to go there with you guys and unpack a few verses. Fascinating story. But the religious leaders at this time have arrested Jesus and are frustrated that they can't actually deal with him themselves. They see him as a heretic and they want to eliminate him. And so they have to go to Pilate. They go to Pilate early in the morning, about 7.30 in the morning, because Jesus had quite a following. They don't want to deal with the crowds. They want to deal with Jesus before anybody knows what happens. They want to see him eliminated before Passover, which was about 12 hours later. But they have to ask permission of Pilate to crucify him, to eliminate him. They don't like that. And they have to find you know, some charges to bring against him. And in their minds, he's guilty of blasphemy. He claims to be the son of God. And so they need Pilate's authorization of Jesus' death. And that's where the scene kind of begins here. And in a moment, you're going to see that Pilate has a big problem, that the Jewish leaders have a similar problem. And I would submit to you, so do we even today. That's the scene as we go forward. John 18, verse 9, 29, excuse me, says this. And Pilate is speaking and dialoguing back and forth with the Jewish leaders. He's, he says this, what charges are you bringing against this man? So Jesus is standing there, they're talking, and he says, he says if he were not a criminal, no, they say, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't hand him over to you. And then he says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now, Sidebar, there are four eyewitness accounts of this particular story. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, known as the Gospels. Um, they all have congruency, but they don't always have the same number of facts. Some things are omitted from one um, account to another. Some, sometimes there's things that are added. Interestingly enough, this story, this conversation between Jesus and Pilate is the only one that's in all four the same. Very, very interesting. Just a little trivia for you. Now, Pilate clearly sees what these religious leaders are up to. Kind of takes one to know one. They know that, he knows that, they're all about the protection of their image, their privileges, their influence, their power, and their authority. And that's why they're bringing Jesus to his court, as it were. Truth is, often, we don't appreciate the people uh, that God puts in our lives 
that could benefit us, help us, grow us. Instead, we see those people as interruptions, interferences, as someone who, who affects our preferences, our preferred way of life, instead of allowing that person to change our life. A lot of our encounters and a lot of our uh, crucial conversations would be different if we could lay down our image and our agendas and really see what God is doing, sidebar. But Pilate sees their motivation and he found, and they find in Pilate the perfect guy to identify with their problem because he was like them. Both groups, the Jewish leaders and Pilate, listen, were torn between um, eternity and image. They were, they were torn between the two. Many people today are torn between, they're torn between image and eternity. That's the crux of our conversation. So Pilate, you may not know this, but if you watched any movies about, you know, this time of history, he's portrayed as a tough guy, a rough and tough guy. He's no Judge Judy. He's no Judge Ito or anything like, no, no, no. This guy's a rough son of a gun, okay? But he is, um, he's taken. He was torn by Jesus' case. It was, it messed him up a little bit because Pilate had never seen such virtue. Pilate had never seen such um, integrity. Pilate had never seen such perfect love. Pilate had never seen hands that healed so many, made the lame walk and the blind see, and ears open, raising the dead. He never seen that before. It was an extraordinary encounter for Pilate. But the religious leaders, they needed to demonstrate somehow, some way that, Je that Jesus violated Roman law, and they, they want to feel comfortable about it. They want to be okay with it. <clears throat> but the problem was, you couldn't find anything wrong with the Son of God. You couldn't any find, he was sinless. He hadn't done anything wrong. There was, there was not one law that Jesus broke. Fortunately for them, they found a kind of a, you know, an ace in their hand, and that was Caesar's image and ego. See, Caesar demanded that there was no other king but him. And now Jesus has made this claim that he is the Son of God, that he was the king of the Jews. That, boom, was their, their entrapment of him. In Mark chapter 12, another gospel, it says, um, Pilate speaking to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's talking to him now. They're in conversation. And Jesus, he doesn't say a lot, but he says this. He says, yes, it is as you say. He would not deny his identity. And the chief priests accused him then after that, of many things. So Pilate asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things that they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was totally amazed. Pilate had to just kind of like step back, you know? He was just, he was so used to people groveling for their, for their, for their lives, for their, for their existence, you know, and, and hearing excuses and seeing people beg and, and, and grovel. But but Jesus doesn't seem to care. He's like, what is the deal with this guy? Is he crazy? Is he some kind of, a, is he some kind of an entity? He doesn't seem to care about his own image, his own life, and all of these seemingly false accusations. And, and he's saying nothing. See, Pilate couldn't believe Jesus wasn't protecting his image. He couldn't believe it. And when you come to a place in your life, listen, when image means less to you than eternity, you will be misunderstood you will be misunderstood. But 
when image means less to you than eternity, you will make some bold decisions. Write this down if you're taking notes. People who are torn between image and eternity struggle with decisions. People who are submitted to eternity, they make bold decisions. See, Jesus had made some bold decisions that he was going to be the sin bearer for all of humanity, that he was going to lead this sinless life, that he was going to be crucified, all for this, this mission that was, he was on. He wanted the world to know that he loved the Father, and he would do it exactly what his dad told him to do, John 14, 31. But, he, but, but Pilate struggled with decisions, but people who are eternity-driven dri- make bold decisions. And one of the reasons that some of you may be listening right now have not established a relationship with Jesus Christ is because you're unwilling to relinquish your image, your your preoccupation with and the struggle with maintaining your image. And some people mask it in um, uh, intellectualism. You know, I have some uh, intellectual hang-ups, and I, I'm still struggling with this, and I'm still struggling with that. If that's the real reason, I submit it's most often a cover-up. I would say to you, in fact, I heard one guy, he said to me, um, I want to invite my friend to church, but he's an intellectual. <laughs> that offends me. That's like saying uh, I'm a card-carrying idiot because I'm a pastor. No, I don't, I don't happen to think that way. I think, I think that Believing in Christ, being a follower of Christ, is an extremely intelligent thing to do. And I think taking Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, my sin bearer, is a wise choice. It's a very wise choice given all the choices that I have in the religions of this world today. Faith in Jesus and the finished work of the cross and believing that uh, he lived a sinless life and that he was the ultimate sacrifice, the atonement for my sins, that he came back from the dead on the third day just like he said he would. And the fact that prophecy said this was going to happen 500 years, sometimes 1,000 years before, many, many, many times over and over. And no other religion can say that? Oh, I think it's a pretty intelligent decision. And it's one of the only religions that claimed, it is the only religion that claims something like that. In fact, all the other major religions of the world point to the fact that there's many roads to God. Yet, in all of their beliefs, one by one, they contradict each other. But nobody talks about that. But it's so interesting how we quickly talk about our intellectual hang-ups with Christianity. See, I think faith, can you tell I'm a little fired up? Come on, somebody. I think faith is intelligent. I think faith is not convincing proof. It's compelling evidence. It's compelling evidence. You know, the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. I love that word, evidence. Evidence. And so faith is single-mindedness. Doubt is double-mindedness. But faith is not a feeling. It's so much more than that. Faith is not doubt-free. Faith is seeing this opportunity. But it's based on uh, compelling evidence that I will take this opportunity. It's very intelligent for faith, for faith to trust in God and to put your faith in God. But listen, for faith to grow, it requires frequency. Frequency. Your faith requires frequency in order for it to work. In other words, it's not built, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not bought, it's built. It's a process, not a one-time transaction. Are you getting me out there? It, it would be like I, I go on planes a lot. I'd be like getting on a plane, and you know when you come through the cabin, the first part is first class. Interesting, you'll see the people in first class, because they fly all the time, frequent flyers. 
You'll see some guy over there like Mr. California. He's all dressed to the nine. He's got his Bloody Mary stirring it. He's on his phone. He's totally chill. And he's that way from the beginning of the flight to the end. And then you have kind of the first timer. They're getting on the plane. They're praying in the front end. And they're praying, you know, kind of on all the way through to the very end because it's their first time. They, they, they have faith, but it's not at the same level. And then you'll have like the puddle jumper. And the puddle jumper, they're, they're praying when a crisis comes. They're not praying any other time, but as soon as there's a little turbulence, boom, they start praying. See, we all have different levels of faith, but frequency will influence our faith in God. And so I want to encourage you, whether the object is a 737 or it's Jesus, God provides compelling evidence that you are secure, following God, putting your trust in God. And as you move towards God, you get the benefits from God. Come on, somebody. So the more frequent flyer you are, the more enjoyable and secure your flight. Not because of convincing proof, but because of compelling evidence. So Jesus is a more secure ride than any plane. I want to encourage you to go for it. Give him your faith. It's a very wise choice. It's a very intelligent decision. But if your problem isn't an intellectual one, it's more likely that it's an image one, an image-driven issue. This is more prevalent in my estimation. And I want to say to you, you're not alone. This is not uncommon. But I will say to you, that is a very costly costly way to look at life and I want to unpack that for you today to discourage us from living that way one time Jesus was sharing with a group of people what he was saying was very compelling in fact everybody was listening they were all in the Bible says that many believed in what he said but they feared but because they feared the Pharisees they feared they the they um, the Bible says they feared the 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 praises of men more than the praises of God. See, that's image-driven. Pilate struggled with this decision about Jesus as well. He didn't want to make this decision. He did everything possible to get this decision off his plate. He wanted, you know, he, 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 he wanted an ironclad decision. Bold decisions, listen, are never ironclad. They're never ironclad. They require faith. They require faith. The decisions that are obvious but not ironclad, they're obvious, are the ones to please other people. But there's great traps with that. It's easier because you can see it, it's easy, it's obvious, but it's never and very, very rarely the right decision. So Pilate, he didn't want to judge Jesus. He wanted the Jews to judge Jesus. He wanted Jesus to do some rebellious thing, clearly like give me grounds for just kind of, you know, taking you out. He wanted a better case, and so he, he even doesn't know what to do, so he ships him off to Herod. And, and then Herod, he doesn't cooperate with Herod at all. Herod ships him back. He's totally frustrated with that. Basically says, this is your problem, not mine. And then this is what image-driven people do. Ultimately, Pilate does a crazy thing. You know what he does? He turns to the crowd. He turns to the crowd. He skips the leaders, the immediate circle, and he turns to the crowd. And he's like, well, you know, what, do you, what, what will you have me do? Well, at that time, there was a custom that every year one prisoner would be released. And so the Jewish leaders, they, they think of a way to really get him, to really get his goat. They say, give us Barabbas. So Barabbas was this just horrible, horrible person. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was like the bottom 
of the, you know, the bottom, the bottom ring of people. And, and Pilate's thinking to himself, this is really going bad. This is not helping. And, and, and I don't want to give him Barabbas. But the crowd would not give Pilate an inch. So Pilate did what any image-driven person would do. He goes halfway. He goes halfway. So he says, okay, I'll take Jesus. I'll have him flogged. I'll, I'll, beat, I'll have him beaten. Uh, by the way, flogged sometimes is so underestimated what that must have been like. Uh, he's like, I'm just going to beat him up a little bit. No, 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 this was bad. Like he flogged is horrible. In fact, Roman guards at that time when you would flog somebody with a cat and nine tails, which it just had like bone and glass and and pieces of stone mixed into these long uh, leather straps, and they would whip these guys. They would strap them hand over hand and just expose their back so they couldn't move. Oftentimes, they'd pass out as they were ripping muscle and flesh uh, from their backs. And they knew Romans were specialized in knowing how to go right up to the point of death. And, and the line was, 40 lashes, they would die. 39, most of them would live. But these guys, it was such a bad beating that the, the Roman guards would have to get plastered. They'd have to get totally inebriated just to numb their senses to execute such a beating. And so I don't want, to miss, I don't want that to be misunderstood, but he goes halfway. He doesn't have them crucified. He has them flogged. And, and then, and then they, 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 they bring him back, and he's thinking, you know what? All right, you know, I did, I, you know this, is what I, this is what I did. I had him beaten. They're going to say when they see him, all right, give us, give us Jesus. It's all, it's all going to be okay. We're going to be able to move on. They're going to accept that. And they screamed, release Barabbas. We don't want him. We don't want him. And so his halfway plan backfires. This is what happens with image-driven people. It never quite goes the way you think it's going to go. And the crowd may be the loudest, the rowdiest, but it's very rarely right. And in John 19, 12, it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. So they, 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 they attack his weak spot. They know that his the lucrative nature of his job and the license that he has and the influence that he has is directly connected to his relationship with Caesar. And they're basically saying, we know you're boss. And so if you don't deal with this insurrectionist, if you don't deal with this blasphemy, we're going to tell your boss. It's not going to go too well for you. And so he has to make a decision. He has to make a decision. So how did he make it? He makes it again the way every image-minded person would do it. He says, you know, he's thinking, what, what will help my image here? What can I do to improve this situation? Mark 15, 15 says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He gives them what they want. And that is frankly disgusting. It's one of the most disgusting things we read in the Bible. Here we see Jesus flogged, later crucified, by Pilate, who simply could not stand up to the crowd. He had to please the crowd. He had to please the crowd to preserve his image and protect his career. Pathetic. And I believe that many of us, though, we won't get serious with the things of God. We won't move forward. We won't take that next step because of the requirements, because we're afraid of what others might think of us. We're afraid of the loss the, of privilege, of influence, of what other people uh, bring to us and do for us, the fans in our life and the followers in our life. I heard one person say, image is a personal facade we present to the world. Image is a play without costumes. Image-minded people are people who play characters, producers, and scriptwriters in a play written by the world. See, the problem is, 
When you're image driven, the script changes all the time. They, whoever they are, always want something or someone else, something different from you, some pivot, some change. And so you can never keep up. You can never keep up. It keeps on changing. And so when we live, as John Eldridge says, he wrote this book called Wild at Heart, and he calls people who are image driven, he calls them posers. He calls them puppets. When, when, when we live like that, we think we're in control, but nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, it's totally out of control. You know why? Because someone else is pulling the strings. Now, here's, an, here's the second point I want to give you. See, image-driven people give people what they want versus what they need. Image-minded people give people what they want. Eternity-minded people give people what they need. Uh, but great leaders, they'll always take you where you want to go, but don't necessarily want to be there. They, they, just, they, just, they think as a higher order of being, as it were. Now, I don't like, um, you know, crucifixes. I don't, I don't like, you know, uh, the cross with Jesus on it as much as most people would. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I don't, I don't like the emaciated, beaten Jesus hanging on the cross because Jesus is so important to me. And if there's anything I can say that's positive about a crucifix is that it, it gives me a healthy um, indignation, a certain... Um, fiery anger to the complete injustice of his crucifixion, and it makes me incredibly aware of the overwhelmingly unconditional love that you and I have uh, received, if we receive it by grace through faith. But we often get upset at what seems to be the unfairness of God and the cross that held this naked, scarred Jesus uh, in this injustice. Um, is a love that you and I could not personally ever perhaps comprehend or understand. A God of sacrificial love rules in a world of gross unfairness. And what's so amazing is that Jesus was a man who did what needed to be done even when people didn't want it. Look in your notes at Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, that which was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took away by nailing it to the cross. See, what Jesus did is he gave us exactly what we needed, but precisely what we didn't deserve. That's grace. But he paid for that grace. He paid for that grace with his life. He, he could have walked away from this plan at any moment. He could have called 10,000 angels from heaven to have everybody just wiped out, but he didn't because he was committed to what people needed, not to what he wanted. He was eternity-minded. He wasn't image-driven. And so Pilate didn't have the courage to lay down his image, yet he recognized the truth, listen, but he didn't surrender to it. That's my third point. See, Image-driven people often recognize the truth, but they won't surrender to it. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that Jesus should be released. He just couldn't or he wouldn't do it because of his submission to his, to his image and to his career and to his, to his influence. And so Jesus, on the other hand, uh, my daddy used to say, then there again on the other hand, he was uh, he knew he was the son of God. He also knew that he had to die. He, his knowledge didn't mean anything unless he followed through with what he knew. See, that's the difference between an image-driven person and an eternity-driven person. The American paradigm is, I see the right thing, <clears throat> but I want to do something else. And so I'm going to enact a plan 
to get what I want and to cover the things that are wrong about it and somehow try to appease my conscience in the process. And so we see that all through society today. We, do I need to give you any examples where people are doing that with all these compromises in the political realm and in family realm? In the ministry, I've never seen more uh, spiritual leaders fall from grace uh, in the sports world, et cetera, et cetera. And so what did, what did Pilate do? Well, Matthew 27, 24 says, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He can say something, but it doesn't mean it's true. It's your responsibility, he says, to the people and to the religious leaders. A bowl of water was his plan? See, he's thinking, I feel dirty. I feel bad about this decision. It's not the right thing to do. I'm going to pretend it's not on me, but it's on you. Jesus does the exact opposite. He's like, I'll take the blame even though, even though I'm innocent. He takes the blame. He takes all of it upon himself. And the only reason in a sense that Jesus became a man was to be manhandled. See, I'm a communicator. And when most communicators use their skill, it's to get out of traffic jams. But Jesus closed his mouth shut. Uh, when most people have friends in high places, they call in favors. Jesus had God in the highest place, and he just called for strength to get through this challenge and this difficulty. When most people have a great resume because uh, of their arrogance, they, they'll, they'll surrender uh, you know, to God's plans, to their own plans, but Jesus surrendered to the will of God. It's not my will, but your will be done. See, do you recognize, maybe you do, but do you surrender to the plan of God? It's not enough to merely recognize uh, because, and by, by the way, when you do just merely recognize, you'll spend a lot of time covering your tracks and you'll live a different way. And I can tell you what, it's exhausting to maintain your image. It's, it's straight up exhausting. Being fake is exhausting. Being image driven is exhausting. Ultimately though, all of this, it sort of doesn't matter in the sovereignty of God. Because it didn't matter that Pilate, you know, did what he did in this moment because God was going to do what he needed to do. In his providential plan, this was all part of the plan. And God, listen, he doesn't need you to surrender to him, to be eternity-minded for him. He doesn't need anything for you. He wants it for you. He wants it for you. God doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient. It's one of his uh, divine attributes, and he's powerful, and, he's, and, he, and he, he can handle everything by himself, but God wants to share his life with you, and this is how it comes to be. Now, legend has it, as a point of trivia, that um, <coughs> Pilate died a lonely man. He died a lonely man with an um, obsession with washing his hands. In fact, ultimately, Pilate took his own life trying to protect his image. You see, people who live to protect their image will always live with regrets. And people who live for eternity will never, ever live with regrets. My final point, and I hope this is ministering to you at all the city uh, locations and all the people who are online, I hope that you're getting something out of this. But here's my final point. Uh, Eternity-driven people look ahead image-driven people look back. Now, I told you I, I don't like Christ crosses. I do and I don't, but sometimes people say, PD, why don't we have more crosses in, in Connect? And why, I don't see those. And <clears throat> I think it's because 
in general, they're all about looking back. We're looking back at a moment of brokenness. And it's all about this kind of sad and horrible and grotesque moment. It's like, it'd be like us having a, an electric chair with somebody around our neck. There's something about it that just doesn't make sense. But the picture of the cross is powerful, but it's incomplete. See, I think maybe a more fitting symbol, this will be a little different for you, might be folded linens. Folded linens and spices because they signify an empty tomb. One of Jesus' best friends, Mary, comes to the tomb in the Gospel of John chapter 20, and this is where he had been buried. And she notices that he's gone, and so she goes looking for Peter and, and, and some other friends to bring them back. And in verse 6 it says, And Simon Peter arrived, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as a burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So they go in. The burial cloth that Jesus was wrapped in, the spices that he was preserved in, all right, he's not there anymore. He's gone. And all the things that were used to protect him and to keep him, uh, the linens were folded neatly. Now, some people would say, why, 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 why were they folded neatly? That's a question that I would have. Some would just dismiss it as not a big deal. It's, not, it's just a small detail. Others would say, well, the body was stolen. I would say to you, it's a big deal. And I would say to you that, no, it wasn't stolen because nobody steals something and then takes the time to fold up the laundry in the room. What happened was Jesus was raised by his mother to clean his room before he leaves. And he folded up all of those linens, and he is no longer in the the tomb. These linens signify that Jesus had actually rose from the dead. I believe the resurrection happened. You have to decide on this side of eternity whether you believe the resurrection is real or not. I believe it is the most rational, intelligent explanation of an empty tomb. I like an empty tomb to celebrate, celebrate better than a cross because an empty tomb does not look back. An empty tomb looks ahead. An empty tomb says Jesus was not only submissive, Jesus was a conqueror. So he started a submitted savior but he ends up a conquering king can i have an amen from everybody out there and so the basis of your faith listen you need to know this is not the teachings of jesus christ the basis of your faith is on an event that jesus did what he said he did and that he rose again on the third day and he conquered death hell and the grave for you and for me so we could overcome in this life as well and so as i wrap things up i want to ask you a final question. I want you to think about this in your life. What is more important to you, image or eternity? See, I have this really simple illustration. I've got this little cable, okay? And I don't know, maybe it's six feet, seven feet, eight feet long. Who knows? I didn't measure it. But I want you to imagine, because it's probably going to go off camera, that this side of the cable goes way out those doors over there, and this side of the cable goes way out into the train tracks, on and on and on for eternity. This represents eternity. Each end going on and on for eternity. The cable, this, this little cable represents that. It represents everything that ever was, everything that ever will be, everything that is to come. And right in the center, let's say, of this cable, I'm just going to make a little mark, a little scratch. You can't see it because the contrasted against eternity, it's so small. This little scratch that I can see is your life. It's your life. 
Your life contrasted against eternity is nothing but a scratch. Image-driven people are living for the scratch. They're living for the possessions they can get to put into that scratch. They're living for all the, the accolades and the followers and the likes. And they're living for their scratch jobs. And they're living for their scratch golf. They're living for just this little scratch in eternity. Pilate was living for the scratch. But Jesus was living for eternity. I want to encourage you today that you choose not to live for image, but you choose to live for eternity. Your king underwent what he went through from a sinless life to a horrible death, paying for the price, paying the price for our sins and for all humanity, and then rising on the third day. He did it for you. He did it for you. So what is more important? You know, the world would say image is everything. I would say, is it? So with every head bowed and every eye closed, wherever you are, listening on Facebook, maybe on YouTube later, maybe on our online campus, at all of our locations. I'm going to ask leaders to come to the front at all of our physical locations. Would you come down front because I want you to be there to pray for people and acknowledge people when they make one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. If you're here today within the sound of my voice and you're ready, maybe some of you have said this prayer before, but you haven't fully surrendered. You're still living for self. You're still living for that image and you want to surrender all of it to God. I promise you living for the scratch isn't the way to live. You know, I'm not going to die for a scratch. Jesus didn't die for a scratch. He died so you could have eternity with him. And so if you're there, whether you're online, I want you to just acknowledge that you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior on Easter. I can't think of a better day to make the decision. If you're in one of our physical locations, you're ready to make a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want you to pray with me, but first I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise your hand online. You can just do that. There's a little button down there. And if you're in one of those locations, just go ahead with every head bowed so everybody can have that privacy. Just go ahead and raise your hand and say, that's me. I'm ready to pray right now. We just want to acknowledge you between me and you and those leaders and you and God. Now, would you say this prayer with me? I want you to say it from your heart. Say it out loud. Say this and join with our brothers and sisters. All of you who've said this prayer before, join with them. Say, Jesus, today, today I surrender my life. Today I choose not to live an image-driven life. Today I choose to live an eternity-driven life. Lord, I want to learn from the conversation that you had with Pilate. I want to learn that the end of an image-driven life is not good, but the end of an eternity-driven life is forever with you. I receive by grace through faith what you did for me 2,000 years ago. It is still relevant. It is still real. It is still uh, necessary for me today, and I receive it by faith right now. Today is the day of salvation for me. Now, for every person who prayed that prayer, I want you to know something. The Bible says the angels rejoice. I want you to know something. I'm rejoicing with you because that's one of the best decisions. It is the best decision you can make this side of eternity because it secures your eternity. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this message. Tell somebody what just happened to you in the chat. Go pray with them in a side room. Some of you that are there and you just raised your hand, come down. Let somebody pray for you. We want to help you on your spiritual journey. And so if you made that decision, we want to encourage you to text somebody. CC saved to 97,000. CC saved to 97,000. And we're going to send you a book. It's called What's Next. 
It's just what it is. It's going to tell you what do you do now that you've made that decision. How do you become a disciple? It's going to guide you and it's going to lead you through that process. I hope we'll see you next week in the continuation of our Encounters with Jesus series. It's going to be incredible. And I pray that this has blessed you. Have an incredible Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Have a great day.